Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. This is part one of a four-part series on the Treasar, the 12 Minor Prophets, delivered at the Jewish Museum in Melbourne in 2015. There are extremely important figures in the prophetic tradition who have their own unique contributions uh, that are grouped together in what is called the Treasar. Treasar is an Aramaic term meaning the Twelve, and they're sometimes referred to as the Twelve Minor Prophets, and as I'm constantly saying, there's nothing minor about them. They're all important. They're only called minor because their books are a lot shorter than what they call major or big daddy prophets. That They're not called big daddy prophets. That's my term. Uh, and that, of course, is Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Therefore, because the books are shorter, uh, and there are 12 of them, we're going to do three per week. Three per week. And uh, I'm going to try and show you exactly the historical setting for each of them. And it kind of works out conveniently the way we break it up into four sets of three because they're all kind of grouped in that historical bunching along those lines. What I'm going to do today is I'm, we're going to do a little bit of historical background because that's very important for these prophets. In fact, it's important for any biblical text that you study. Understand the setting. What is the background? What are the conditions? What are the challenges against which these prophets are working? And then in the first part of today's session, we're going to do historical backgrounding, and then I'm going to talk about the book of Hosea, the book of Hosea. We'll have a little break, and then after that, uh, having set the historical background, I'll be able to cover two books. We'll cover the books of Yoel and the book of Amos. They are the first three that we're looking at, Hosea, Yoel, and Amos today. Those of you who uh, fall asleep, I'll wake you for the important moments that you need to uh, be aware of. Uh, it, it may not be as fireworky as Ezekiel, but there's nevertheless some extremely important and controversial issues that we will be discussing. And as always, especially on controversy, I invite your contentious participation. I'm going to, uh, first of all, we're going to, now, um, watch carefully because I'm going to do a specific timeline uh, right now. This timeline, I'm going to start this at around minus 800, so 800 BCE, and I'm going to call this minus 500. So 700, 600. And I'm basically going to use this timeline for the next few weeks because really all of our 12 sit in this framework, in this great 250 or 300 year configuration. Uh, I've mentioned this before and I'll just very quickly allude to it again. 
is that when we look at the world in minus 500, many historians and uh, students of the history of ideas have noticed that round about the year minus 500, there is kind of this global shift in consciousness. And we saw it in a number of places in the world. We see it, we see it in Greece as the golden age of philosophy. In India, this is the age of the Buddha. In China, this is the age of Confucius. In Persia, this is the age of Zoroaster. And there's a, a shift. And everyone has a shift except the Jewish people. Uh, and the reality is, is because we'd already had our shift. We had it a couple of centuries earlier. And once you understand that and you understand the radical nature of what the prophets did to uh, the concept of religion, the concept of faith, the concept of spirituality, you'll understand how profound an impact that made. And that really is kicked off by the guys we're going to talk about today. Because Isaiah, he's sitting around here, right? This is, this is 720. This is the very, very significant year, 720 or 720, minus 720 or minus 722. It's around that region is the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. That's a very, very massively important point. So Isaiah's career is really, I mean, it spans over a few kings, and it's really around there. Remember, he's dealing with the king Hezekiah, the king Hezekiah, and Isaiah is here. Jeremiah, who is living at the time in the events leading up to and including the destruction of, of the temple, of the first temple in Jerusalem. And that happens here. The temple is destroyed in 586. Another cataclysmic moment. And so Jeremiah is living there. He's like a hundred years later. And Ezekiel is more or less a later contemporary of Jeremiah. Ezekiel's not prophesying in the events leading up to the temple, but as you know from last week, Ezekiel's prophecy really kicks off after that first wave of exile. And so Ezekiel, this would really incorporate Ezekiel's prophecy here, but it's not a doubling up of Jeremiah because Jeremiah is the lead up to the destruction and Ezekiel is the aftermath of the destruction. They're the three big daddy prophets. But in order to understand, in order to understand the prophets we're going to look at today, we have to go a little bit further back. So we're actually now going back in time to look at where that whole prophetic project began. And interestingly, it began in the Northern Kingdom. And let me remind us, that after King Solomon, which was way back here in the 900s, and he built the temple and so on and kicked off that whole project, but after him, the land of Israel, or the, the united monarchy, was split. And it was split into two kingdoms, 
we have two kingdoms, a northern and a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom is comprised of ten tribes. That kingdom is known as the kingdom of Israel. And the southern kingdom, with Jerusalem as its capital, the southern kingdom, comprising two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, that's the kingdom of Judah. And these two kingdoms are working in parallel. They are aware of each other. Sometimes they are ignoring each other. Sometimes they're at war, sometimes they're at peace, but they're working in parallel. Very quickly. The capital of the northern kingdom was Samaria. The capital of the northern kingdom was Samaria. And a very interesting place that was too. Now, there's a fundamental difference in the political <coughs> setup of the northern and the southern kingdoms. The southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah was much more politically stable. No question about it. Over all of those centuries, it was much more stable politically. Why was that? It's to do with the king. It's because they had the Davidic succession. So that it was a dynasty coming from King David right through so that you knew who the next king was going to be. It was going to be one of the sons or a close relative of the previous king, it was kept in one family. Like we understand kingly dynasties or royal dynasties today, yeah. Was David king of Israel? David started as, David, David was king, he was the second king of the united monarchy. The whole thing, the whole thing. He wasn't the first king of the whole thing. The first king of the whole thing, of course, was Saul. Saul was the very first king of the whole thing. Then after Saul was David, after David was his son, Shlomo, and then after King Solomon, it got all busted up. And the main mode of acceding to the kingship in the northern kingdom, there was one basic mode by which people became king in the north. And that was by violent assassination. If you woke up one morning and felt you'd like to have a crack at being king, you took your favourite weapon, and if you got close enough to the king, and if you had enough supporters who would proclaim you king, you geschmeist the king, and then you said, I'm now the king, and people went, okay, you're the king. So you can imagine, the northern kingdom had a lot of kings, and the whole system wasn't very stable until until round about minus 800 where one particularly powerful general came to the got himself sorted out on the throne of the northern kingdom called Omri and he established the house of Omri and the house of Omri and what's fascinating of course is that once we get archaeologically in the 
in, in looking at this period to the House of Omri, we can start seeing mention of the House of Omri in different artifacts right throughout the Middle East. This was, these were known entities. But he's really the first stable dynasty in the north, and it lasted for four generations. That's considered pretty stable for the north. Uh, Omri, in fact, uh, I mean, Omri has a son, and his son did something so horrendous uh, his son was Achav and perpetrated uh, a social justice problem that was so horrendous uh, and that already and dealt with by a very famous figure from the Bible called the prophet Elijah uh, that of course God had basically said well I'm going to let the house of Omri run for four generations but after that it's not going to be around anymore and in fact after four generations or so, um, well, after Achav pretty much, uh, we had uh, a kind of a revolution called the Yehu Revolution. A Yehu, who is familiar with the career of Yehu from the Bible? Uh, Yehu was a guy uh, running around here, pretty much um, uh, backed by uh, by God in this in this revolution, uh, look. If you met Yehu, if you met Yehu, you wouldn't meet him for longer than a few minutes, because he'd probably kill you. Uh, Yehu is someone who killed just about everyone he met. Uh, he wiped out the kings. Not he wiped out not only the king. He not only killed the king of the north. He also killed the king of the south. He wiped out the entire administrative and the family of the house of Omri. He slaughtered hundreds of prophets of Baal. He, 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 really, uh, he really went to town on the whole place. Just about. I mean, he had supporters, but there's no greater uh, psychopathic killer in the Bible than Yehu, uh, even though, in fact, most of what he did was, was pretty much... Uh, in line with what the, the prophets said needed to be done. The house of Omri had become so corrupt. And they'd not only become corrupt, of course, in social justice, but they had introduced unbelievable cults from everywhere, particularly the worship of Baal. I won't go into Baal now. Baal is a fascinating religion. There's no one single kind of religion called Baalism. It was a, a, a widespread phenomenon right across the Middle East, of, of the worship of, uh, of this storm god Baal. And Baal, uh, the, the, and, and of course, you know, I mean, you would have heard of Jezebel and all the others. They're all, they're all part of that house of Omri picture that Yehu wiped away. Yehu then establishes a new dynasty in the north that also lasts for another four generations or so. And having dispensed with all the Baalism, Having dispensed with all the Baalist cults, they return to the kind of organic religion that had been taking place in the north before the rise of Omri and the introduction of the Baalist cults. And that was a very, very interesting religion. It was Judaism, well, Israelism, but not as we would necessarily recognize it today. They were worshipping the God of Israel, but they were doing it in two, fundamentally two sacred places, one in the north in Dan and the other 
in the southern part of the northern kingdom here in Bet El. And at each of those places, they had set up a shrine dedicated to worshipping the God of Israel through the golden calf. Uh, It's a little bit amazing, really, because uh, it's almost like something is hardwired into the brain of Israel that when it sees the golden calf, it's like, and we have to worship it. Now, interestingly enough, most of the prophets, when they were rallying against social injustice and idol worship, weren't necessarily, I mean, they do allude to it, but they weren't that fussed about the golden calf cult, because at the end of the day, that wasn't their main beef. Their main problem was social justice, and it was just a really weird way of worshipping God. In fact, uh, in other words, it was Avodah it was idol worship, but it was our idol worship. It was something about it that was a shtickle Hamish. In fact, I'll go, I mean, it's amazing because the golden calves at Dan and Bet El were not actually destroyed until here. Why would they have been destroyed here? No, 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 the exiles here. Why were they destroyed here? Because there's no way they were going to survive the Josianic Reformation. That when Josiah came through, he wiped everything out. He even, as I said, he even dug up the bones of priests that had worshipped at these, served at these places and burnt them on their own altars to, to uh, desecrate them. So that, they, so, but they lasted until here. Even righteous kings like Hezekiah didn't really get rid of them. You're listening to Collected Talks of David Solomon. If you enjoy these lectures, you can help us cover the cost of hosting, editing and producing these podcasts for as little as $3 a month. Visit davidsolomon.online to learn more. One of the ways in which we understand that there must have been some kind of return to the pre-Omri style of worship is because by the time we get to the middle of the 700s, there's a very, very powerful king on the throne who has in fact enacted a very, very stable rule for several decades. And his name is Yerovam Hasheni, or Jeroboam the second, meaning that he was named after the very first king of the northern kingdom, who was called Jeroboam. So you can see that they're going back to revive that kind of original northern kingdom style thing. And Jeroboam II's reign in the middle of this period is not merely a strong reign, but it's a very, very economically successful reign. The northern kingdom is doing really well. And it's not only doing well economically, but it's doing quite well in terms of its security. And militarily, it's expanding... Because a lot of the nations that were surrounding here were preoccupied very much with Assyria that had already started over here. So because these guys are preoccupied with Assyria, there's a vacuum. Jeroboam II on the throne, able to flex his muscle. 
and he's got a good economic engine going on. Everybody follows so far? The whole of the prophetic revolution that's about to start doesn't happen at a time where things are going bad. It happens dafka at a time where things are going well. And there's another facet to this too. Think about it. If you're worshipping idols and your economy is doing well, you're not likely to stop. And so this was compounding it. They really thought they were onto something here. There's also evidence now that amongst the upper, very upper class of the society, there was in fact a return to Baalism. And there were different ideas about religion and about power that were emerging from the contacts being made with the expanding Assyrians. So we're deep now in the <laughs> in the period of Jeroboam the second because it's interesting. Yonah, for example, was a prophet who lived at in during the reign of Jeroboam the second. At the time of Jeroboam the second, we had another big king in the south, in parallel, and that was the king of Uzziah. Remember, remember the king that went into the temple to offer incense? Right then got struck with leprosy? That king was Uzziah, and he also reigned for decades in a very solid, stable rule. So we had two kings. They were more or less cooperating. There wasn't a huge, they weren't at war. They were more or less cooperating. They looked after each other's kind of interests. But there's no question that there was a complete separation uh, between the two kingdoms. Now, in this environment of economic success and very, very confident security that Jeroboam was in, some people were realizing that <laughs> there were some very, very great underlying social issues. And the fundamental underlying social issue arose from the economic success. And that is, as we so often see, we see it in 2750 BCE, and we see it now, is that, and it, when you say the words, people go, oh, yeah, well, that doesn't sound so bad. Uh, and the first thing we start to see is the gap between rich and poor become greater and greater. Now, on the one hand, if you are, if you are, a raving capitalist and laissez-fairist and you would say, oh well, you know, that happens. I mean, really, that happens. Tough for some, good for others, that happens. But that's not where the story ends. Because when the gap between rich and poor becomes too great, those classes that are at the bottom of the economic rung become deeply unenfranchised and deeply exploited 
and cannot raise themselves from the oppressed situation in which they find themselves, their freedoms become curtailed, and the upper classes, whether politically or commercially, completely exploit them and then begin to treat them as their own property and exploit them evil, in in evil ways as well. Uh, Facilities before the law become unequal. This has far-reaching consequences right across society. You know... You know that in Australia, even this very enlightened modern democracy, that that if not for the mechanisms that were built into our system, it would happen here as well. It would happen anywhere. Even the most, you know, laissez-faire capitalist democracies, as we found when we came out of the 19th century, have to have certain social institutions built in or people will simply get crapped on. But we weren't seeing that, of course. We were seeing greater and greater oppression, especially because, because uh, what the Northern Kingdom was finding, of course, was that its markets were increasingly demanding certain types of products. Farmers would be forced to do these types of products. At the same time, you had this ongoing religion. You had uh, no mechanisms by which anybody who was at any kind of disadvantage would be able to uh, have any redress. And subsequently, of course, tremendous social injustice was starting to take place in one second. As well as, and, and, and all of that is really the background for which the horrendous and idolatrous practices that were happening at some of these places was kind of like the cherry at the top of, the, of that social injustice cake. When people were scandalized, people who were scandalized by some of the practices that were happening at the, at the holy shrines, really that's just the apex of a very, very big social injustice problem. It was starting to happen in the southern kingdom, as the prophets will tell you, but it wasn't anywhere near the degree with which materialism had taken over as the primary value in the north. In other words, if gods were worshipped, they were only worshipped in as much as they could advance the material conditions, and that is really something we need to understand. That was starting to happen in the southern kingdom, but not when, nowhere near to the same extent. Remember that Uziah and his son Yotam were considered more or less righteous kings on the whole. Um, uh, then the kings of Judah started getting a little geopolitically clever and so on. And then the, the social justice issues started creeping in. But in the north, it's really, really bad. The first prophet of the Treasar, which is Hosea, is not chronologically speaking, as we understand it, the first person, uh, the first person that we call a prophet, to really get up and and give us this revolutionary new understanding of what the God of Israel wants. That actually belongs to Amos, and we're going to talk about Amos after the break. So, although Hosea is mentioned first. It's Amos, who's kind of chronologically a little earlier. And the reason Hosea comes first, the reason Hosea comes first in the Treasar is because 
the sages of Israel tell us, and we understand this when we look at the book of Hosea, they actually tell us that of all the prophets, of all the prophets, including Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, of all of them, Hosea was the greatest. He was the one who had reached the highest apprehension of the prophetic calling. He was right up there. And his book, for those of you who have not yet looked at it, it's 14 chapters long, is stunning. So in language and message, there's something about Hosea that's incredibly lofty, even though his themes are controversial and quite remarkable. Who has read the book of Hosea? Okay. Because at the end of the day, Hosea is a story... Don't look at it now. Don't look at it now. We'll look at it in a second, but don't look at it now. Hosea is a story about love. And it's a difficult story. Hosea ben Be'eri was from the tribe of Reuben. And we understand that he was kind of probably already uh, a, 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 a type of uh, spiritual person or a holy person, a holy man. But, uh, and had already, was quite spiritually developed. He wasn't really involved in the worship of idols at any of the major cults, centers. But God comes to him and says to him, this holy, holy man, God says, you see, to quote Avram Yeshua Heschel, the great uh, scholar of the 20th century, as a student of prophecy, he goes, a prophet is a person, not a microphone. A prophet is someone who doesn't just speak the words of God, they live the words of God. We saw this with Isaiah, we saw this with Jeremiah, we saw this with Ezekiel. Their very lives exemplify their message. So what we're about to talk about we understand happens on a literal level as well as obviously on an allegoric level and on a prophetic level. But God says to Hosea, to this very holy man, I want you to find the most wanton and promiscuous woman just find the most unbelievably promiscuous and lustful and wanton woman and marry her. Hosea does this. Of course, it's not long before she starts taking other lovers. He tries to overlook this behavior. She leaves him, she comes back. She leaves him, she comes back. Every time she gets disappointed by one of her lovers, she runs back to her husband because she knows that her husband feeds her and looks after her. Sorry? He takes her back. He loves her. 
he takes her. And not only does he love her, he's been told by God this is to be his wife. So he's got to take her back. Eventually, the situation is she, it's, it's, she basically then um, gets herself involved with some other dudes and she finds herself in a situation where she's actually being prostituted out. So Hoshea, her poor husband, has to buy her back. I mean, it's it's awful, awful situation. In the course of which, uh, she gives birth. She she gives him three children. Now, Hoshea's not Hoshea's not even sure. The first two, he's fairly certain are his. The third one, he's not sure. But God says to him, the first child. Oh, I mean, her name. Who uh, who understands Hebrew? Her name was Gomer Bat Divlaim. The rabbis tell us why we should call Gomer Kikulam Gomrim which is a, about as close as the rabbis get to actually quite a disgusting joke. So, she, God says, this first child, a son, you're going to call him Yisrael. Yisrael, with a sign, not Yisrael, but Yisrael. What is Yisrael? It's the name of the valley, the Jezreel Valley. You're going to call him Jezreel. That is the great fertile triangular area in the north of Israel that was really the engine of it. It was also the site of some of the great abominations of social justice that had happened in the northern kingdom through the preceding generations. It also has the meaning God will sow, meaning that there, is, there, 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 are, there are consequences to what's happening. The second child is a daughter. God says, you will call the daughter Loruhama, Loruhama, which means not mercied. Not mercied. Yeah, my name is Laurel Hama. And, well, we say that, but the third child is called, and it's, this is, this is, the third child is called, as a boy, is called, God tells you, you're going to call that child Lo-Ami. Not my people. That's why, that's why they say that maybe the third child had a kind of questionable fatherhood. But really, what is the fundamental allegory in all of this? And then God explains to Hoshea the whole purpose and message behind what's been going on with these set of instructions to him about his own personal life and about his relationship with Gomer Batadivlaim. The allegory, of course, is that she is the people of Israel. And Hosea is the allegoric representation of the divine. Time and again, I have tried to establish this deep connection with you, this relationship based on love. And time and again, you've abandoned me for other gods and for other ideas. 
I mean, by the time, actually, it's interesting because their relationship, it's, ex, it's an extremely interesting study of that type of, I don't know if any one of you have been in that type of relationship, but uh, it's a very interesting study of that because by the time you get to the end of chapter three, she, when he actually has to buy her back and he, she brings her back and she's like, oh, I'm sorry. So he says, you know what? Um, we're going to do it like this. Um, you're going to live here and I'll look after you. I'll provide you with what you need. But we're not going to live as man and wife for a while. We're not going to have intimate relations for a while. I just need you to settle down. I need to see that, you know, the children need a mother. And I need to see that we can establish, re-establish our relationship uh, before you know, I, I, I invest more emotion in it. it, it if you read Hosea and you read those things, it, it sounds like very much contemporary kind of marriage counseling advice that you would give a couple. I mean, it's common sense, but it's very interesting the way these things unfold. But as God explains to Hosea, you know, I, I betrothed the people of Israel to myself. And the ideal is that that is an eternal betrothal. These are the famous stunning lines. Some of the men might be familiar with this. And I have betrothed you forever. And I betrothed you. With, I, mean, I mean, actually, you know what? Have a look at this because it is so stunning. Um, those of you who even have a small window on the Hebrew, um, have a look at uh, chapter 2, verse 21. And I betrothed you to me forever. I mean, actually, this is, this is almost, I actually think you probably would more likely to put this in the future. I shall betroth you forever. With righteousness and with justice. And with kindness and with mercy. And I betroth you to me in faith. faith. And you will know God. It's verses 21 and 22. So this is the first... This is the first, I mean, really, chapters 1 to 3 of Hosea deal with the story of this relationship, which becomes this immense allegory for the relationship uh, between God and the people of Israel. And it's interesting because on the surface, it looks like God's primary concern is with um, Israel's propensity to wander off after all sorts of foreign cults and religions. And in fact, that is uh, one of the major problems. God does not allow what? Human nature? Yeah, well, human nature is not perfect. Uh, no, but the fundamental, the fundamental basis of the Torah is the belief that... Uh, aspects of human nature that are detrimental that human beings have the discipline to overcome that that if if you're not on board with that then you know i mean all of us have impulses and lusts and natures and a good person is defined as someone who is able to uh 
obviously not everyone agrees, but um, <laughs> have the discipline to, um, to control. control themselves, but not in, a, not in a way that sometimes people view religion as a kind of self-oppressing or, you know, depressing kind of way, but just that you can be a mensch in the world, you can work around and, 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 and just control yourself and have the discipline to say, I can choose as a human between right and wrong. It's true. We do have, we all have a human nature that, that would like to lead us in all sorts of directions. Um, and, uh, and, and the key, the key, as we looked at when we saw in Yirmiyahu, the key is not simply to exercise that discipline when you know that if you don't, you're going to get caught, but in fact to exercise it on yourself because you know at the end of the day that that makes for a better world and that that makes for you to be a better person contributing towards that better world. And that is itself really what human beings ultimately should be striving towards. All right. So Hosea is, uh, is, is kind of, his life is this, is this wild <laughs> roller coaster. And what's amazing is that more than any other prophet, we actually get to see the inner workings of an emotional relationship that, that, that someone has, that a prophet has. And it's an incredible piece of text and very, very relevant. Like those, those fundamental human issues of relationships don't go away. And this poor, long-suffering husband who just keeps taking his wife back. And that God says, that's me. You know, I've been doing this for a long time since God with the Jewish people. And I just, I'm always there and I'm just wanting them to come back and, uh, and, and be in a relationship with me. So that, that's the first three chapters of Hosea. But in order to understand, there's no clear, consistent theme necessarily emerging from chapters 4 to 14. But there are some windows on some stunning ideas. And really there's a shift in focus towards uh, this concern with having Israel understand the foundations of social justice and understanding what the fundamental problem is that Hosea is keen to shift in our concept of God. It's worth spending a minute on me going over this because you really, and we'll look at it inside to see the key passages that are nothing short of revolutionary. They might they might be something we take for granted today, but they are revolutionary in, the, in their effect. And that is this. So you got this... Uh, so you're living in the 8th century BCE, and you've got a concept of God. Um, so we have... Okay, so we're Israel. So in the ultimate sense, our God is... Uh, one and invisible we're not like other nations I mean even even the people that were worshipping in the golden calf were worshipping the invisible god they just needed the golden calf to remind them of who that was as a symbol um, and we have a god and that god's universe it's very powerful whatever. Uh, the idea that god is the god of all nations uh, and demands moral behavior from all nations is something that's going to emerge in Hosea and Amos. We're not necessarily at that level yet. But what 
what seems to be the case is that if I offer a sacrifice and I do a ritual a certain way, then God will respond in a certain way. Positively, I'm hoping. I do the ritual, I bring the sacrifice, I say, God, here's my sacrifice, my cow, my sheep, my chook, whatever it is. Uh, give me rain. Give me love. Give me happiness. Give me a million bucks. Give me the latest model BMW. Give me an iPhone. Uh, let my kid get into medicine. Um, whatever it is. Let me win the war. God is this neutral force and God will give me what I want if I bring the sacrifice and if I am religious. Kind of like a Calvinism on crack. Now, yeah, the big... The big, big, and, and, and I've got to tell you that that notion of sacrifice in relation to the divine powers is not entirely disappeared from the world even today. And in fact, um, it, it's, it's got tremendous similarities even in some Vedic conceptions of sacrifice and whatever. But even without the sacrifice notion, that kind of pursuit of materialism if I am the right kind of person, if I perform the right kind of rituals and so on. That is unfortunately still uh, permeates a lot of culture. I want you to look, those of you who have a Tanakh, I want you to look at the absolute key cracker passage in Hosea, and uh, it's a very, it's, it's, I'm going to read it in Hebrew and I'm going to read it in English and you'll know the line that I'm getting to. I, I want you to turn to chapter 6 and I want you to turn to verse 4. He says, What am I going to do with you, Ephraim? What am I going to do with you, or do to you, Judah? Your kindness, meaning chesed is this very difficult word, which we sometimes translate as kindness, but it means all acts of goodness. It's like a morning cloud. It's a beautiful poetic image of a cloud that uh, you, you, you can imagine the Middle East where clouds are considered good things because they, you know, like they, they bring rain. But, but a cloud that appears in the morning, I mean, this is not Melbourne where it starts off with a beautiful sunny day and within 10 minutes it's awful. But like you see this little cloud in the morning and by noon it's gone, right? Your kind is like a morning cloud. And like the dew. It's gone early. Therefore I, I hewed with the prophets. I, I killed them with, with the words of my mouth. In other words, I had prophets come. I, I, I bring prophets and they, 
ויספה, ומשפטיך אור יצא. And your... How does that translate that there? Judgment. Yeah, no, I understand the words, but I want to know the... That Harag Tim refers to the sinners, not the prophets. Very interesting. Can your judgment be favorable? Ah, so they ask it as a question. Right, right. All right. Now, verse 6. This is the one. If you, re- if you remember one verse from Hosea, it's this one. Because right here, here's the revolution. Ki chesed chafatzti velo zavach. I want kindness, not sacrifice. V'da'at Elohim me'olot. And the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. That is the revolution. How? How do you worship an invisible universal God? This is, the, this is the cornerstone of the beginning of ethical monotheism. How do you worship an invisible, infinite God? How can you possibly do it? Only through ethical behavior with one another. There's the only way that that infinite, powerful God is going to relate to you. You share in the same beneficence towards the world that God does. That's a very, very, very big and important point. Now, Hosea, the rest of Hosea talks, he castigates against Ephraim. He talks about, Hosea talks about uh, wasted opportunities. A very interesting, if you look at the, his whole allegory of the Geffen Bokek, this vine that has ripened too far, and that uh, the concept of, of waste opportunities and of, of obviously his stunning uh, chapters 13 and 14 and his, the famous verse as, you know, of, of Shuva Yisrael Shuva Yisrael Ad Hashem Elokecha Ki Chashalta Ba'avonecha Return Return because you have stumbled in your sin and once again, we're going to look at this, and that's actually a good point to go to the break, because when we come back, we're going to look at Yoel, because he's really not just the cornerstone of ethical monotheism, this revolution, that that is actually what religion's meant to be about. But this idea of transformation, this idea of inner transformation, this idea of return, uh, that's going to become this enormous theme that's going to be picked up by the prophet. Uh, he's actually the one who says, Hosea tells us, amazing, this is, this is why these dudes are prophets. Uh, he tells us, because, because even if you want to say, even if you want to say, even if you come along and you're a, you know, chazafressing biblical critic and you want to come and say, ah, oh, Hosea wasn't written there. Hosea was written here. Hosea tells you about a time that is going to exist in Jewish history that's going to be a whole span of time where you will not have a temple and you will not have a king and you will not have any of the things, the institutions you take for granted now. What are you going to do? Where's your sacrifice then? 
How are you going to gain atonement? But the real fundamental idea in Hosea is that your atonement never depended upon your sacrifice anyway. It depended upon your inner transformation, your teshuvah. And instead of bullocks, we offer up the offerings of our lips. Prayer is going to become the way in which humanity is going to engage with the divine. That's a very, very good question. A big thing to come out of Hosea. Sorry? Well, everything, everything that we're saying, it goes without saying. So, uh, all right, have a break. We're going to come back and we're going to look at Yoel and we're going to look at uh, Amos because we have a, still a fair bit to do. All right. Okay, we've got two prophets to cover. Fortunately for, for our purposes in that, um, the first prophet that I want to talk about is, uh, is, is the prophet Yoel, whose book is quite short. Um, but just, just on Hosea, I mean, I, I didn't really... Uh, we'll go into a little bit uh, with Amos. So I didn't really... Uh, and Yoel, but didn't really get to talk about um, the other thing that Hosea talks about, which is uh, beginning to move towards this uh, quite uh, radical notion of uh, the way that um, individual and collective uh, self-transformation... Uh, and we've touched upon this before, uh, and, and Isaiah is really the one that picks this whole thread up, uh, leads ultimately to a situation where you can transform the world, and, and that is what we understand by the Messianic age. It is an age in which in, uh, human nature has, has uh, worked sufficiently to be able to transform the world uh, to kind of like a, an ideal place, certainly relative to, to what it's been. But let's talk about Yoel. Uh, Yoel is a book that you could probably read in about 10 minutes. It's only four chapters long, and they're not long chapters. Uh, and the most startling thing... Well, let, 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 first of all, let me just um, make one thing very clear about the book of Yoel. Because there's lots of discussion about one aspect of it, and we have to actually uh, make a determination on this. Because as you know, I'm always talking about how important it is to understand the historical setting of the Nevi'im, of the prophets, in order to understand their message. And the problem with Yoel is that we have no idea when this prophet lived. Uh, he's placed in between Hosea and Amos in the Bible, in the Tanakh, because of the thematic consistency of what he's talking about. What he's talking about at the beginning seems to kind of pick up from what Hosea has been talking about and what Yoel speaks about at the end kind of seems to prelude what Amos is about to talk about. So there's a kind of a thematic consistency. A lot of people have tried to wedge him into that period. And some people have said that Yoel is actually probably more likely a contemporary of Isaiah. And some people have said that he's more likely a contemporary of Jeremiah, and some people have said that Yoel's actually post-exilic. So the truth is we don't know where Yoel sits, but we do know what he's talking about. Do we know where he lived? Uh, we're assuming he lived in the land of Israel. Uh, interestingly enough, you know how with all of those other big prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they all spend some time talking about how they became a prophet. 
Whereas with the minor prophets, we don't really see very much of that. We don't see how they were, their process of selection and how they were called to become a prophet. They just are. There's a little bit of it in Amos, and we're going to touch on that. But uh, Hosea, Hosea, for example, doesn't talk about it. He just pops up and there he is. And the same with the oil. The most, the first startling thing we see about Yoel, and this also has allowed some people to try and maybe date him, is that the first chapter of Yoel is very much concerned with describing a massive plague of locusts that is going to come upon the land. Uh, and some scholars that have looked at Yoel in the way that he describes locusts, said that it would be very difficult to write about this if you haven't actually experienced it. Now, uh, Yoel talks about this plague in horrific terms. Uh, the rabbis, of course, say, well, we know, we know that the plague of locusts in Egypt, that the Torah tells us, v'lefanav lo lo before that plague, there was no plague of locusts like it, and afterwards there'll be no plague of locusts like it. That was the greatest plague of locusts ever. So what's the plague that Yoel's talking about? Because that sounds pretty horrendous. And they say that the difference was, is that in Egypt, it was all one type of locust. Whereas Yoel is talking about a plague, and he tells you, he tells you, there's the Gazam, the Arbe, the Yelek, and the Chasil. And they're all four different types of locusts. And they all do four different types of damage to the point where after they've been through, there's nothing left. And some scholars try and place Yoel at a time uh, where agriculturally and whatever, but, you know, locust plagues. Uh, we have them in Australia, as you're aware of that. And in the Middle East, they have them as well. They kind of come from nowhere. I mean, suddenly, out of the desert come these massive clouds that just devour everything. Uh, it's actually quite interesting if we're talking about on that subject. Some have speculated that the reason the Torah allows you to eat locusts... Uh, you are aware of that, are you not? Locusts are kosher. Really? Yep. And the reason you're allowed to, and, I, and some have speculated that the reason the Torah allows you to eat locusts is because if a plague of locusts comes through, there's going to be nothing else to eat. Uh, and they consume absolutely everything, but they are devastating, devastating on, on a society that would be based primarily on agriculture. So, what are these? Are these, is he talking about literally a plague of locusts or is he talking about a wave perhaps of because he delineates the four different types of locusts that are part of this plague is he talking is he living at a time where he's talking about four different waves of invading armies of invasions that are going to come through the land or as is so often the case with the prophets it's both Yoel describes this great impending agricultural disaster that's going to ruin the society. You have this impending disaster and you have this big thing. And so what do you do? 
and this is already moving into chapter 2 of Yoel, the, the nation fasts. You call a big fast day. You try to entreat God not to send this disaster. Very, very interesting because that would support, that kind of approach would support Yoel being in that period of Amos and Hosea around the time of Jeroboam II. Why? Why? What, what, what echo does that give us? It's an echo of Jonah. It's an echo of Jonah. Jonah goes to Nineveh and says, you've all got to repent. Destruction is coming if you don't repent. And so the nation calls a fast day. Uh, Yoel describes what this fast day would look like. Everybody comes to the fast. And it's, not, it's, not just, it's not just fasting, it's a massive public gathering to ask God. And yet it's formalized. We're going to come together, we're all going to fast, we're all going to ask God. Like a ritual. And everybody's going to be there. The bride and groom that got married last night, they're going to be there. Little children out of school, they're going to be there. Everyone's going to be at this fast and at this thing. And Yoel says the great line that uh, really gives the whole window into his message and why his message is, is right on for this particular revolution of the prophets. Because he says... It's really not enough that you all come together and do this great big ritual to appease God. Rip your hearts, not your clothes. In other words, it is not going to affect anything if you're repentance or your entreaty to God is merely an external exercise. If it's merely a ritual, there has to be an inner change. There has to be an inner transformation. Yoel goes on in chapters 3 and 4. He starts to talk about, once again, this theme that I that I touched on a few minutes ago, this idea that that inner transformation by moving away from the externality of things and moving towards this inner change doesn't just affect the person. Your world will change. Your world will change. So Yoel is saying... And that's, that, that would be the big slogan from Yoel in, and in his discussion of this concept of Teshuvah. In four chapters, he is able to encapsulate the key, very underestimated book, Yoel, able to encapsulate the key message. And of course, you know, his famous lines, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Hosea, Yoel, and Amos are expanding the notion of God. 
God is no longer this tribal divinity that you offer sacrifices to and he'll give you crops and rain and whatever you need. God is a God that demands justice from all nations. And interestingly, interestingly, when we look at the prophets, God, what the prophets are concerned with is that nations behave justly towards each other. But Israel, <coughs> Israel mustn't just behave justly as a nation, but we are judged also as individuals. The prophets are very concerned with how we behave towards each other as much as how nations behave towards us. Even if you do what Hosea says, Hosea says in the last chapter, Shuvah Yisrael, return, do Teshuva, and Yoel goes, okay, you're going to do Teshuva, but this is what it should be. And he lasers in to the inside, to the heart. It's about understanding and self-critical appreciation of how your life can change if you become a better person and stop. We all think we're good people. Even those of us who are abject, abysmal sinners all the time still think we're good people. It's a, it's a difficult thing to look in your heart and say, I've got to change it. Now, I want to come to Amos because Amos is a ginormous book. It's it, not, not big in length, it's only nine chapters, but it's, uh, it's just a very, it's stunning. It's stunning. And Amos, Amos's language in the Hebrew is really kind of a precursor for the type of sublime language we're going to see in Yeshayahu. Amos is a farmer. He's a farmer from a place called Tekoa. Now there are People go, ah, oh, Tekoa. I know Tekoa, right? It's a town in Yehuda, it's a town in Judah. But there was another Tekoa in the north, and there's quite some discussion as to whether Amos came from the Tekoa in the north and the Tekoa in the south. My feeling, after having studied for a number of Amos a number of times and looked at other things, is that my feeling is that he came from the Tekoa in the south. Either way, he's a farmer. But he's not, when we say farmer, when we say farmer, we don't mean that he had a farm. He wasn't a landed farmer. He wasn't some, you know, he wasn't Wentworth. He didn't have kind of property. He was much lower down on the social rung than that. He was an itinerant farmer wandering around getting employment where he could. He basically either was a herder of sheep or a farmhand. He was either herding sheep or he was pruning sycamore trees. But he was effectively an itinerant farmhand. And suddenly, he's a prophet. Although, as we're going to see, he uh, decries that description. The first two chapters of Amos are really quite startling because Amos goes around all the nations, oh, not all of them, but quite a number of them. He talks about Damascus, he talks about Tyre, he talks about Edom. And he says, in the name of God, 
on three of their sins, I can kind of forbear. But on the fourth, I won't hold back. I won't hold back from punishment. I won't return them to their, their former status. I'm going to break them. And so you're reading this and you're going, okay, so the prophet is having a go at the nations and then using exactly the same formula. This is quite what was interesting about what was asked to me outside. Are we any different from the nations? He goes around the nations and in exactly the same formula, he comes to Israel and to Judah. Al shlosha pishei Yisrael. On the three sins of Israel. Va'al arba'alo ashiveno. And on the fourth I shall not return them. Now, at no point really does he describe what the three sins are that, in fact, we kind of get a ticket for, or, you know, like a warning. But we are told what the fourth sin is that breaks us. And the, the language that Amos uses is very, very startling. And that's why I want to uh, have a go to... Um, have a look at, uh, we're, we're, we're going to look at chapter 2, and I, I want to focus on the northern kingdom. I mean, he says, look, okay, so go to verse 4. Ko amar Hashem, thus said Hashem, al shloshapish e Yisrael, on three sins, al shloshapish e Yehuda, on three sins of Yehuda, and on the fourth I shall not return them, al ma'asamet Torah Hashem, on their kind of, Abandoning of the of the of the of the Torah of God, didn't keep his his statutes and so on. So there's kind of a Yehuda kind of gets off a little lightly, you might say. It's a very generalized reprimand because Amos, although it would appear that he's from the south, his prophetic career takes place in the north. Remember that Amos is here. So if Hosea is here, Amos just precedes him. Probably a contemporary, just a little older. But have a look at verse 6. Ko amar Hashem. Thus says God, Al shlosha Israel on the three sins of Israel. And what are the three sins of Israel? He doesn't say. But the Mulbim and other commentators say that they are the three sins that are the fundamental sins that happen in any society that is going to be sexual immorality, uh, murder and idolatry. They are the three sins that cause God to consider destroying a nation. But on the fourth I will not forgive them. And it's not any of those, it's this. Al On their selling of the righteous person for silver, there are different ways of translating that, but the, 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 the plain meaning of the text is, and a poor man for a pair of shoes. That is, that people are suffering the, for no other reason than the social inequity and injustice of exploitation and oppression. It's not enough. It's not enough that you do things within the law. Things have to be applied 
ethically. This, this, it, it's, it, it, in other words, it's the idol worship, and it's not the, and it's not some of the other horrendous. It's, it's, it's the, the deep social oppression that is happening through your pride and through your confidence and through your arrogance and greed that you're just allowing growing sections of the population to be exploited and that God will not tolerate uh, in the land of Israel. So uh, Amos is already uh, in very, very poetic terms uh, describing this situation and it's a ver- that's a very very powerful prophecy but uh, and that continues if you look at chapters 3 and chapters 4 he goes into into some detail uh, regarding uh, regarding that now I just want to I, ju- I, ju- I just want to come back before we before we hit the big one in Amos before we get to the really guts of it uh, I want to talk about a very interesting facet in terms of the dating of Amos and the dating of uh, the chronological issues generally in the Middle East at this time. Because if you look at the very, very, very beginning of Amos, he tells you that his prophecies are happening. He begins his prophetic career two years, he just says this, two years before the earthquake. As though 2,700 years later we're going to know what he's talking about. Not an earthquake, but the earthquake. And what is fascinating about that, and remember, remember that we also looked at there's a rumor of an earthquake having happened round about that, that story with Uziah coming into the temple to offer the incense. Remember I mentioned there that there's, so according to some sources, there's an earthquake happens, which is, you know, at the same time it gets leprosy. But even beyond that, well beyond that, archaeologists have found that round about the year, round about the year 760, round about the year 760, right across the land of Israel, there was a ginormous earthquake. Uh, We're talking, they estimate that it must have been at least around 8.2 on the Richter. It was devastating. It is, you know that, that there's a, what they call the, uh, uh, it's called the Dead Sea Fault, and it actually uh, goes all the way up to here. So I think they regard the epicenter as having been up here. But they've seen this at Chatzor, and they've seen this at Lachish, and they've seen it all over. Um, just a, a layer where just almost every building that stood uh, collapsed. It was a devastating earthquake. So when Amos talks about the earthquake, uh, he means the big earthquake. Now, there's no question that if he starts prophesying two years before this, then some people start to link the earthquake with uh, some kind of manifestation of God's wrath uh, at some of the issues that the prophets are talking about. But uh, be that as it may, it's just to, just to be aware that when we talk about the prophets of Israel... These are not fairy tales from the comic books. We are talking about people that lived in real times, in real historical and geographical settings, and they talk about things that archaeologists today... I mean, I wouldn't call myself a you know, flag-waving apologist for, for, for biblical historiography. I'm sceptical, 
where I need to be. But even within the sceptical camp, and when I say sceptic, don't get me wrong on that. Don't overplay that scepticism either. It's just that I, I, I'm very, very careful when we talk about capital H history. But within that framework, we need to realise that when we talk about the Northern Kingdom and we talk about Jeroboam II and we talk about uh, earthquakes, and we talk about these are real historical events. So Amos is talking about social injustice and he's describing Samaria and its fattened state and, and, and uh, he's got some pretty harsh things to say about men and women in that society. Uh, you know, the, 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 the women that are sitting around waiting to be spoilt by all these uh, new kind of luxuries and, and the men who go out and, and exploit and murder and steal in order to supply these luxuries, which is itself a metaphor for what the whole of the Northern Kingdom was doing economically. It just was a, a, a train crash in slow motion. But chapter 5, chapter 5 of Amos is the uh, real engine of Amos's thought. In fact, it's so important that I thought that we might actually look at it in a little bit more detail than we normally look at text. It starts in very, very, very forceful terms. Shim'u et hazeh. Listen to this thing. Listen to this word. Which I carry to you or bear to you, Kina, Beit Israel, as a eulogy kind of house of Israel. I mean, I'm free translating, but it's a, who's, got, who's got a translation? Which translations have you got? You've got dirge, okay. You got dirge. Who's got, which translations have you got? You've got JPS. You've got stone. Are you okay to read to the group? All right, so can you read on? Hear the word which I intone, as a dirge over you, O house of Israel, fallen not to rise again, is maiden Israel, abandoned on her soil, with none to lift her up. Okay, just pause for a second. Nice, and very nicely read, but, but it can't compare with the Hebrew. It's just, it's not even in the same league. Nafla lotosif kum betulat Yisrael. She has fallen. She shall no longer rise up, the Virgin of Israel. All right. I'm just saying, like, those of you who want to take the time, and it's not as difficult as you think just to try and negotiate the Hebrew, it is so rewarding because it's sublime in its its poetry. All right, carry on reading. Um, For thus said my Lord God about the house of Israel, The town that marches out a thousand strong shall have a hundred left. And the one that marches out a hundred strong shall have... Pause. For thus says God to the house of Israel. Verse 4. Seek me and live. The rabbis tell us that those two words in verse 4 of the fifth chapter of Amos, Dirshuni Vichyu, 
are a summary of the entire spiritual discourse of Judaism. You see, Amos has already been over a whole historical overview of Israel's relationship with God and how they just do not seem to understand the simplicity of what God is asking them to do. And now it comes down to these words. Don't look elsewhere. Seek me and live. Once again, that message is repeated in verse 14. Valra, seek goodness and not evil. But I, um, I want to ask you to jump to verse. <laughs> go to verse tw- twenty-one, and and this is where you and I might take this for granted. But here is where people had to buckle their seats to hear this, to hear a prophet of Israel say these words. Verse twenty-one. I loathe. I spurn your festivals. I hate your festivals. I am not... Ma'asti chagechem. Sorry. Do you understand what that means? Saneti. He says it twice. Two different words. Saneti. Ma'asti chagechem. Not, oh, I'm a prophet of God. You have to be religious. You have to observe the festivals. No. I hate your festivals. I am not appeased by your solemn assembly. If you offer me burnt offerings or your meal offerings, I will not accept them. I will pay no heed to your gifts or fatlings. Spare me the sound of your hymns and let me not hear the music of your lutes. Right, now the big one, now the big one, now the big one. So what's going to happen if we stop doing all that? Because God says, I'm not listening. I'm not looking. I'm not listening. So what's going to happen when we stop doing all those festivals and all those sacrifices? What's going to be the upshot? Not, not, in other words, it goes even further. Not when we transform ourselves to do religion properly, but what's going to actually happen when we stop doing all this? But let justice well up like water. Righteousness like an unfailing stream. You see, you see, you see. There are literally dozens of translations of that verse, verse 24 of chapter 5 in Amos. And it's, none of them can do it like the Hebrew. Because this word, v'yigal, first of all, just on a surface meaning, v'yigal kamayim mishpat, let justice roll like water. And righteousness like a mighty stream. Except that those of you who are familiar with Hebrew will know that the word v'yigal can be translated in two ways. And in fact, all of the medieval commentators are going, ah, it's this one, ah, no, it's this one, ah, no, it's this one. And in fact, of course, it's both because it's the prophet and it's poetic. Because it could also mean and let and let justice be revealed like water. Vigal can mean it rolls or it can be revealed. In fact, some translations you have might even have that. You've got revealed. Others have got rolled. I've heard also well up. Well up doesn't really do it. It's to me it's like it's 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 lashon gilui or it's lashon golel. It means that, well, I think the main meaning is rolling. I think revealed means they're trying to indicate kind of like a a spring of water that is suddenly revealed when you move all the detritus away. 
But, but the real upshot of it is, is that, is that by stopping all of these um, external and superficial practices, by transforming your understanding of relationship with God, then justice will flow like water and like a stream. Justice and righteousness. That is the underlying default condition of humanity if you stop trying to conceal it with all of these external and false impressions of your relationship with God and using religion to exploit the people. Now, I know, I know that some of us are sitting here going, oh, well, that's all right. I've always said that. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't apply to me because I've always said, ah, the from, they don't really get it. And uh, being too religious is not the point and uh, all the rest of it, right? But we can't, we can't afford to be that smug because very often... There's this thing in society called secular religion and it's just has just as much capacity to uh, conceal true justice and true righteousness as anything else. It's really a universal message about, I guess, the, the buzzword today is this thing called mindfulness, right? There's a certain um, default condition the prophets are saying of humanity if they just behave in a decent and humble fashion towards each other justice is something that becomes that that is allowed to roll across society um and then he says look you know really the whole point then once again he goes through historical overviews now i want to get to just seeing the time yeah he says did you offer sacrifice and oblation to me those 40 years in the wilderness? Yes, yes, yes. He's already just saying that sacrifice is not good enough. No, that's what he's saying. He go, no, he's saying, he's saying, like, when I looked after you in the wilderness, like, you didn't offer sacrifices. That was, a, that was when we had our close relationship. Okay. We had a close relationship then, and you weren't offering sacrifices. So uh, why are you doing it now? I mean, we do it. The Torah wants people to offer sacrifice, but what had happened was that they had lost the whole point of the whole thing. Now, um, in the five minutes remaining, I, 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 there's no way I can discuss Amos without discussing the enormous um, uh, and the incredible chapter 7. The incredible chapter 7. Because God shows Amos what's in store for the northern kingdom. Remember, Amos is here. And the northern kingdom is destroyed here. It's another 20, 30, maybe 40 years away. It's another 30 or 30 years away. And God says, I'm going to do it. It hasn't come out of the prophet yet. But God's kind of having private visions, with giving private visions to Amos. And he shows him this mind-blowing plague of locusts. Something that similar to what Yoel was talking about, but times ten turbo. And Amos looks at it and he goes, "But God, how's the Jewish people going to be able to withstand that?" 
This is, this is the sages of Israel, of, uh, the rabbis have, have pointed out the difference between Hoshea and Amos. Hoshea might have been a more sublime prophet, literarily, but Amos was possibly a bigger bitch because he actually stood up. Was, you know, God said to Hoshea he was going to destroy the northern kingdom, and Hoshea basically said, well, you've got to do what you've got to do, God. But Amos is going, is more like Moshe, it's more like Moses, going, no. But the, yeah, he argues, he says, he defends Israel, you know. But the language is, so then God shows Amos this enormous fire. It is a huge blazing fire that consumes everything, like from the top to the bottom, it's just devastating. And Amos looks at it and he goes, how is the Jewish people going to survive that? And then God shows him a vision and God is on a, uh, a wall with a plumb line. You all know what a plumb line is? In the ancient world, when you built, I mean, it's one thing to make things level or horizontally, but you've also got to make it straight so you have this thing, it's called an anach in Hebrew, and it's kind of just a weight at the end of a cord, and you mark the central spot when you start building, and it doesn't matter how high you go, so long as your weight is still on that point, you know your building's going to be straight. So God's standing there with, a, with an anach, and Amos re- has no answer for that, because he realizes that God is going to rebuild the society on using only the remnant of what's going to be left after whatever happens. Now, Amos is talking about this vision. In, he goes to Beit El, the shrine of the idol-worshipping shrine of the northern kingdom, and he starts talking these prophecies. And the high priest there is a guy called Amatsya. And Amatsya says, get lost. We don't want your type around here. If you want to go and prophesy, go to Judah. They love prophets over there. He says it to him. He says those words. But here, this is royal property. And Amatshah goes and tells the king. And he says, Amos the prophet is stirring up trouble against you. He's talking about all sorts of ooga right? We don't want that here. He tells Amos, get lost, go back to Judah. And Amos says to him the famous line, I'm not a prophet, I'm nor the son of a prophet. Meaning, meaning, obviously he's a prophet, but meaning, I'm not a professional career prophet. I'm a farmer. I was just minding my own business. And Hashem diber miloyinabe. God has spoken. Who's not going to prophesy? I didn't want to come here. You think I like being here? I came here to tell you the word of God. And within a year, your wife will be whoring in the streets. Your children will be slain and you will die in a foreign land. God has spoken it and Samaria will be destroyed. And the northern kingdom will fall. That is the first big announcement in the whole of the prophets, chapter 7 of Amos, where he tells it. And after that, 
Once the prophet has said it, you know it's going to happen. If it doesn't happen, we wouldn't be reading the book of Amos. So you know it's going to happen. This is a very, very big thing. I mean, there's other amazing passages of Amos where he goes over and over the history of the Jewish people and shows how God has tried at different times to try different ways to bring the Jewish people to an understanding. You still didn't return to me. You still didn't return to me. But that particular episode really got under the 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 skin so to speak of the prophet and he let loose and he says okay that's it i'm telling you what god's going to do and bang and indeed uh what we then saw after the whole hoshea and amos um uh, prophetic project that of course wasn't heeded then we subsequent after jeroboam the second there was just very very quick succession of kings over the next couple of decades um more violent assassinations, several of them in, at, at once in some cases, and one case, then there was uh, Menachem, a king of the northern kingdom, he tried to have all sorts of pacts with Assyria and so on, but nothing helped, and in 722, the Assyrians came through um, and just took all of the ten tribes away. And they not only ethnically cleansed the entire area, they repopulated it with people from elsewhere, which, according to some, uh, is the origins of the Samaritans and so on who uh, were living in these areas. And that's why, to come back to remind us that for Isaiah, it was 20 years later when Hezekiah had a very different response to the prophetic calling and Jerusalem managed to be saved when the Assyrians came again. But from 720 onwards, BCE, we do not have uh, the ten tribes, we don't have the northern kingdom, because they did not listen to that immense prophetic revolution that Amos and uh, Hosea and uh, Hosea and Amos were trying to effect. So thank you for listening to all that. Uh, and uh, next week we'll do three more exciting prophets uh, a little bit further on and uh, once again look at how that whole uh, dramatic revolution has played out. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon.